heads up, this episode contains some salty language. The United States has the highest rate of maternal mortality of any high-income country. The last time the World Health Organization collected data on deaths in childbirth was 2015, with the U.S. at 14 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. America's Health Rankings, a publication from the United Health Foundation, has numbers for 2018. They put the U.S. number at 20.7 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. This is Lady Parts. I'm Andrea Moraskin. My guests today are both midwives, certified nurse midwives working in the Northeast U.S., and they both argue that more integration of their profession into the medical system here would lead to fewer women dying in childbirth and better maternal health outcomes overall. These midwives are fed up with the status quo, what they see as the over-medicalization of the natural birth process. And to hear them tell it, they face an uphill battle. We'll start out with Joan Kumbelik. She's an experienced nurse midwife who worked for many years in the Hudson Valley region of New York. She also has a master's and PhD in global public health from New York University. Joan is currently researching trauma among female veterans at the VA hospital in West Haven, Connecticut. In our conversation, Joan put midwifery in a global context, and she also talked about her own clinical experience. Joan, thank you for being on Lady Parts. Welcome to Baobab Tree Studios. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start with the basics. Midwives are ancient, prehistoric. I mean, there are women who helped other women give birth thousands of years before there was a field of medicine. But what's the definition of a midwife today? You know, in some ways, I'm going to say that that the definition of a midwife hasn't really changed. I mean, we still, I have this re, this beautiful slide from Angkor Wat that shows a midwife delivering a baby and, um, and the woman is sort of reclining with a support person behind her. And, you know, that's the way a midwife delivery can still look today. So in some ways, we haven't changed a lot. Um, but of course, in other ways, you know, we are we have a different level of training and licensing and certification that has really standardized the kind of care that midwives give. Um, and, you know, that that's sort of a, a global approach to midwifery education. What is the difference between a midwife's training and an obstetrician's training? So midwives are the specialists in normal physiologic birth. And obstetricians are the specialized specialists in birth complications. If we're talking only about obstetrics, and the same is true for, gyneco- for gynecology, that midwives really promote um, and take care of women during normal uh, preventive care episodes. And physicians, um, you know, deal with things like cancer and um, other high risk complications. Okay, but there are plenty of people. I mean, how how much? Um how many births are uh, supervised by midwives as a percentage? Well, in the U.S., we only have around 12% of births, um, which is really an outlier. If you look at all other countries, all other, most other high-income countries and most other countries in the world, um, midwives do vastly more than that. For example, in, in England, I think it's over 50%. In Scandinavian countries, more like 80%. Which is to say that, you know, in the rest of the world, the sort of baseline, frontline uh, 
reproductive health care provider is a midwife. And in the U.S., we're much more of a marginal or optional profession. So you were in practice for 23 years? Is that right? Actually, 25, yeah. Um, and then you, um, you moved to doing public health research. What made you want to do that? Um, well, I want to, I'm, I'm just about to start back into practice. So it's been a year and a half that I've been out, and I, and I realize it's just a really big part of my life, and I need to go back to it. But I think that I originally started down the path of public health um, because I was really frustrated with how obstetrics is in this country. Like all the things we get wrong, how we sort of have like systemic problems that don't equal good outcomes for mothers and babies. Um, the I was working at a really progressive um, federally qualified health center that started out with a really small environment and, and really very quickly corporatized. And so suddenly we were under pressure to have a really high caseload and um, – you know, and that's that's not midwives' sort of stake in the game is not to see a patient every fifteen minutes, right? That's not what we're good at. Um, and and I could I could work in that environment and 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 found it meaningful still, but um, I think that I was just frustrated with things that seemed so ingrained um, that I just needed to take a step back and just think about like a bigger world. So you talked a bit about your frustration with obstetrics. Can you put that in the context of the larger culture of birth in the United States? We know that we spend more money, we intervene more, but we have um, very bad outcomes, serious outcomes, women and babies dying at higher rates than in other high-income countries, um, as well as you know, high rates of women who are traumatized by their birth experience. Um, and we should be able to do it better. There are countries in the world that do it a lot better. You know, and I would argue that they get it right by having midwife uh, midwives as their, their frontline healthcare um, obstetric and GYN healthcare providers, um, that they have universal access to care, which we still don't have. Why do women die in childbirth in the United States in the 2010s? Um, well, it's not to forget that birth does have serious complications. Um, and the but the reasons that say 24 to 26 per 100,000 women die in the U.S. as compared to like 6, 8, 2 in other high-income countries, um, I, I think we're struggling with a lot of those reasons. And I think that uh, it is to some extent context-specific. There's a lot of conversation around different contributing factors. You know, why there, there's racial um, disparities an often quoted statistic is that women in New York City, black women in New York City are 12 times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Um, and, and so is that because that they, they are getting a different standard of care in the hospitals where they're seeking care? Is it because uh, they have complications at different rates because of a lifetime of sort of internalized uh, stress and trauma from racial disparities? 
Um, there are rural w- women living in, in rural areas where their OB care is, you know, two or three or four hours away, so they have distance issues. Um, what is it about, you know, a lack of continuity of care? We don't do that very well. What does it mean? You know, there's been a lot of research that shows, um, like I was saying, that model of a continuous uh, care provider um, or a small group of care providers that, that care for you throughout the continuum of your pregnancy and afterwards have better outcomes than kind of, you know, showing up and who's going to take care of you and how many different institutions are you accessing. And um, so I think that there's, I think that we're really struggling nationally with what exactly is going on. California has implemented a lot of um, care plans around um, high-risk complications in pregnancy that seem to be helping bring the maternal mortality rate down in California. So it is, is it that we don't have a high level of training and uh, you know, perfect implementation of emergency response? That may be a part of it. So if you were to, you know, when you look at the death certificate and, and they would write down the cause of death, what would what would some of those most common things be um, in the process of childbirth? Like a large percentage are from hemorrhage. Um, and then there's, you know, a, a lot of bad things like uh, cardiomyopathy or heart failure related causes. Um Severe infection, um, uh, renal failure. Um, there's, but, but the majority are have to do with bleeding and hemorrhage. So here's the the thing that's really interesting, and and this is like where I guess the big part where you make your case that more integration of midwives is better for maternal health and lowers maternal uh, mortality. And I know there are some statistics to back this up. But when I think of why would a woman die in childbirth or if someone's hemorrhaging, it seems like that's when you go to the obstetrician, right? How in that way does having more integration of midwives lower maternal mortality? So that's a good question. You know, I think that it's important to remember that um, that there's prevention and surveillance that is really important about these problems as well. And that, you know, because bad things can happen doesn't mean that we need to take that step beforehand, like, oh, let's do the maximum intervention that we can do now to prevent these problems. So, you know, like I said, I think that there's still a lot of discussion and debate about what is exactly going on, but there there are indications that our high level of unnecessary interventions actually cause these problems and that midwives are much more able and have high, and have better um, statistics showing that we are much more able to support a normal physiologic birth, right? So that may be some element of just preventing problems before they even have an, happen, especially those problems that arise from sort of over-intervention or over-medicalization around the time of birth. But yes, I mean, your point is good that, um, and that's why that obstetric care team is important because there are serious things that can happen and um, that, you know, there are instances, though the, the rate is quite low, um, of those serious complications. So can you give me an example of a situation where monitoring and surveillance prior to the birth, something that a midwife might provide, might prevent um, 
a, an adverse outcome or a death um, or some kind of, like you said, over-intervention that leads to problems. Yeah. I mean, actually, just today I was doing chart review because I'm looking at severe maternal morbidity in the veteran population. And I was doing a chart review um, of a woman who had PTSD. And she had delivered, and it was um, a, a, a semi-complicated delivery, but she went home and um, it, during her, at the end of her hospitalization stay, and this is based on just, you know, record review, right? But at the end of her hospitalization stay, there was some indication that she was complaining of shortness of breath. And she showed up three additional times at an emergency room complaining of not feeling right, having shortness of breath, and she had a, a blood clot, right? Uh, she had a pulmonary embolus. And so, and and it was a very life-threatening um, situation. She was she was admitted to the ICU, and she was cared for, but she was in, in the ICU for a very long period of time, and she was separated from her baby during that time. And the notes with the social worker afterwards said, you know, everybody just kept telling me, oh, this is all in your head. This is just like a PTSD thing. You know, you seem to be fine. It's okay. Just go home again. And I feel like if she had had a care provider with whom she had really bonded, she wasn't showing up in an emergency room, but she had someone she could call up and say, I feel different than than I did before. And that person said, yeah, I know how you felt before. Oh, this does sound really different. That would be a way that we could have prevented that problem for that woman or intervened at a much earlier place where it wouldn't have gotten to the to the point that it did. So you um, you mentioned severe mor- maternal morbidity. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might know, not know the difference between morbidity and mortality. So yeah. could you just explain that? So totally. Yeah. Mortality is when someone dies. And morbidity, or what's called severe maternal morbidity, refers to kind of life-threatening events where a woman almost dies. And some of those are not preventable, but it's estimated by the CDC that almost 60% of those cases are preventable, which really reflects on the management needed to be different. Um, And, you know, that can come from things like we were just talking about, like not thoroughly evaluating and supporting someone's mental health status, or it can come from, uh, you know, mismanagement of severe bleeding, uh, you know, infection postoperatively, things like that. So a, a really large percentage. And then, of course, there are complications of pregnancy that are patient-related that we can't change. You know, we know that placenta um when the placenta comes before the baby, right? That's an example of a serious life-threatening situation. The woman needs to be delivered by cesarean section to be safe. Um, And so it is expected with that problem, with placenta previa, that, you know, we we expect and need to be prepared for an operative delivery, uh, possibly high blood loss, things like that. But then, you know, preceding that, we know that people who have cesarean sections are, especially multiple cesarean sections, are more likely to have that particular placental complication. So that's another way sort of that like that over-intervention can really kind of snowball and put you at higher risk for later pregnancies. Hmm. Do you know why that is? I think it has to do with scarring on the inside of the uterus um, I'm, I, and, and that makes it more likely that a placenta will actually grow in kind of a different place than it normally would. Now, it's interesting you you keep bringing up this idea of trust and relationship. 
Um, and you said when you were working at the federally qualified health center, they started, you know, making it only 15 minute appointments and you don't work that way. Um, so do midwives generally take in you know prenatal appointments more time than doctors? And does the health insurance infrastructure support you to get paid for that? time because we know that the time at time is money in healthcare, right? Right, exactly. So um yeah, the health insurance structure system, healthcare as we know it, doesn't really support that um robust time experience. I mean the way that it's so great during pregnancy because we see people, we can see people like, you know, 14, 15, 16 times sequentially up until the time they have their baby and then afterwards as well. So you can develop a very deep um, and uh, meaningful relationship with people. But, um, yeah, to be in a work environment that pays you extra money. I mean, I was, quote, incentivized by the number of people I saw. And there was a deep part of me that felt that was completely unethical. Um, and, you know, that's, I, I think it was around that time that I was like, oh, man, you know, maybe I just can't work in this environment anymore. There is such a thing as boutique care, right, where you are like always on call for your panel, your small panel of patients and people who are insured then pay a lot of extra money for that. And that goes against kind of my and that's great. You know, I think that there can that that also is another route to providing this like really time intensive specialized care. But it goes against my kind of um, foundation in community health which um, I feel like we should be able to provide that same style of care for everybody, you know, whether they, they work that way or not. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know in the U.S. how you go about making a living um, and doing that. Um, you, you, I know some home birth midwives, and they really, they really did that dream of spending an hour at every prenatal appointment with the women that they were taking care of. Um, and, you know, it was a combination of some self-pay and some insurance. And, yeah, they were struggling to make ends meet, um, but they were doing it the right way. So that takes us back around to public health. Um, do you have a sense that the Affordable Care Act changed things for midwives at all? Do you have a sense that things are are getting better um i think there's a big demand i think there is a growing demand for midwives in this country i think that it still has a really really long way to go um when i started to work at the va which is sort of our country's um example of single payer you know uh, national healthcare system i was really excited because they have a very robust um, practice statement about midwives that we, you know, we they will hire us. We'll work at the f in the full scope practice, and the truth is they have not overcome barriers and hired midwives to do that. It's kind of like we really need systems in place that recognize midwives playing a different role, not a peripheral role, but a very mainstream role in our healthcare system. You know, and I think the Affordable Care Act is supportive in some ways of, of recognizing nurse practitioners and recognizing midwives. Um, but I think that there's still just a really long way to go in restructuring how we give um, our, uh, our reproductive health care. But would save us money, right? 
it would totally save money. Yeah. So what are the what are the <laughs> barriers? I think that we have a um, structure in place that is doctor centric. It's not patient centric. I was just looking at a really, really interesting study about um, women who um, have birth-related PTSD, right? And they said it wasn't about the complications they have. It was about uh, the way they were treated through that complication. And so I, for a long time, I mean, for 25 years, right, I worked in a hospital um, where no matter how emergent a cesarean section was, we always told people why we were doing it, why it was needed, you know, and they, and as is the law, right, they have to sign a consent form saying that their questions have been answered about it. And yes, sometimes that has to happen very, very quickly. But we always did it. And then I was working in an office where half of my patients went to a different, you know, very tertiary care center, right, a, a, um, a big hospital in the area. And they started asking us to have women um, halfway through their pregnancy sign a consent to have a cesarean section. And I was like, no, I can't have them sign a consent for a cesarean section because I don't know why it would possibly be done. You know, you can't do that when they're three months from delivering. And they said, well, it's just, you know, it, it's going to be too stat. It's going to be too, too quick. And we, we can't even tell them at the time of their cesarean section um, why it's happening. So we'll just have the consent form already in their chart. And, you know, that to me was like, oh, that's why women get traumatized, because they could be whisked out of their headspace of like working and working and working to have this baby, not sign a consent, not be told why, not if they speak a different language, not have that interpreted into that language, but just be whisked into an OR to have it done. And I saw that women come back to me from that environment. And I'd say, well, why did you have a, a C-section? And they were like, well... I don't know exactly, you know, and that's what gets to the heart of how women are traumatized and don't get over that kind of experience. Um, so you mentioned that other high income countries are getting it right when it comes to childbirth. Aside from, you know, a socialized healthcare system, what could we learn um, from countries like Denmark and Sweden, even Poland, to have lower uh, rates of maternal mortality? I do think that uh, core of, you know, as I said, like mid midwives as the sort of baseline, frontline um, obstetric care providers is another really big part of it. I think that um, a, a different culture around birth, and that's the one that's kind of unwieldy and hard to change. But I think we need to start talking about that and, and continue working on that um, because we have so much fear of risk and so much distance from the normal physical process of giving birth in this country um, that we make decisions often that are very fear-based rather than um, – really based in the reality of what our, you know, even our birth environment needs to look like. I mean, there's an um, interesting recommendation from the National Health Service in um, England that says home birth, for especially for women who've had babies before, is as safe as being um, in a hospital. So, you know, we 
we, 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 and we're a million miles away from that oh, yeah, in the U.S. We are, so, we are so <laughs> far away from that recognition. Well, if you've never done something and you haven't, you're not, you don't live in a culture where most of us are constantly exposed to births happening because they happen in hospitals. So how do you, um, what advice do you give to women who are scared, especially for first time mothers going into birth? I think it's really important to, um, I tell people to do like tons of research, get that all done, and then really try to like, write that down and burn it up and just be as close to like, really think about themselves as kind of an animal um, and let their like respect and own what their bodies can do. You know, there's a time as women are laboring um, when they there you can just see when their control goes away. And that's the point where they say, you know, like, I can't do this. I can't do that. And I always feel like, yay, finally, we're at that place where we're going to do it. You know, like, it is an experience of letting go of all of your ideas and thoughts and learning about how it's going to be and just completely give it up and be your just animal self like one moment at a time and this and and people definitely get to that place and the sooner you can get to that place sort of the better it will be the more you'll kind of progress and let it go it's hard it's really hard and and sometimes you know we we feel we pull it off great and sometimes not but also just knowing that however women have their babies however they get through it whether they have this like ideal birth with candles going or they have a really high intervention birth that they deserve respect and support and congratulations for the way that they got through it like there's no I think that there's no other area that has so much sort of um, dogma about how you should have a baby and how you should take care of that baby once you have that baby. Like, we just need to also say, like, hey, it's all good. You know, like, you're safe. Baby's safe. That's good. I like what Joan said about tapping into our animal nature while in labor. Can you relate? Let us know on the socials. I'll give those out in a sec. Coming up after a quick break. A labor and delivery nurse decides to become a midwife after the things she sees working on the obstetrics floor of a major urban hospital. Stay with us. Lady Parts is finally on Instagram, at Lady Parts Pod. That's our Facebook handle, too. And we're on Twitter, at Lady Part Podcast. Just one part. Which part? I'll leave it up to your imagination. Say hi and let us know what topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Stephanie Mitchell is a nurse midwife in private practice in Providence, Rhode Island, and she holds a doctorate from Frontier Nursing University. Stephanie identifies as a black cisgender woman, and it's safe to say that taking on inequities and injustices in the health system that affect black women is a major driver behind her work. We get into some specifics in this conversation. I recommend you take a look at her Instagram. It's at Dr. Midwife with an underscore between doctor and midwife. She has the first episode out of her podcast, Dr. Midwife at Your Cervix. You can find that on her Insta, and we also have a link to it in the show notes. Stephanie, welcome to Lady Parts. 
Or should I call you Dr. Mitchell? Um, I think Stephanie, I think Stephanie is just fine. Although I think having just, um, uh, become a new graduate, I think I thought maybe for the first two, three months I should, you know, enforce Dr. Mitchell, but that just sounds weird to me. So no, Stephanie's good. <laughs> I like your your Instagram um, handle, Doctor Midwife at your cervix or your tagline. Yeah. So can you ex- can you explain the the doctor part? People might be thinking a doctor or a midwife. I thought it was one or the other. Right. So um, just a little bit of probably background professionally is um, I just uh, finished my doctorate degree recently this year, in fact. Um, and that was a doctor doctorate degree in nursing, um, and that followed my master's degree of science in nursing, and I have a certification in midwifery, and I received that in two, um, 2017. And then um, my BSN, which is a bachelor's degree in nursing, I received in 2007. And so what that means is basically I'm a, I'm a midwife, a certified nurse midwife, practicing at the doctorate level which is, um, you know, considered to be like the, the, um, kind of, uh, the expert opinion, uh, expert level of midwifery or nursing practice. And for me specifically midwifery. So people sometimes can have doctorate of nursing, um, practice degrees and be, uh, family nurse practitioners. Um, but we are all advanced practice registered nurses. Okay, so let's kind of go back in time when you were growing up and before you began began your education in midwifery, how aware were you of midwives as kind of as a thing, as an option? When I think back to my very first experience with obstetrics, um, it happened when I was 15. And, you know, at the very first OB visit following my positive pregnancy test, um, consisted of various instruments and various vaginal exams by various people. Um, I would say there was maybe a, a brief moment in, in um, you know, uh, the, my pregnancy, my first pregnancy, that I was cared for by a midwife who uh, was very, uh, what was the word that I'm looking for, maybe compassionate and... Uh, kind, you know, and I think that was like, okay, here's the other side. Here's the other side. And it's called midwifery. Um, I was, uh, a labor, a labor delivery nurse at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So they have a pretty, you know, uh, high volume, acute care, um, fast moving, um, residential and private practice patients. Um, and so that is really where I got my first exposure on the other side of obstetrics. And things started to come together on why things <laughs> were the way they were. And um, I would like to say probably that is what ultimately propelled me <laughs> or really put the foot to my neck <laughs> to move into midwifery. That was eye-opening. Can you give me an example of an eye-opening experience? I think things that maybe happen on labor and delivery, um, the layperson would, you know, not see it as, they wouldn't see it as a huge problem. But there are things that happen that don't need to happen when you don't ask for consent, not just ask for consent, but explain um, 
beyond further than consent about your options for not having, you know, um, five or six different people in your room or, you know, every two hour vaginal exams or things that are just seen as a standard. But the very first hint, the very first red flag was the fact that on a 120 nurse unit that there were two midwife, um, two, sorry, nurses of color. Now there's plenty of ancillary staff, plenty of, um, techs and lab people and, you know, you know, um, there's diversity in, in that type of way. And so all the support staff essentially were either, uh, West Indian or, um, Latina or, um, or black American. But in terms of like the nurses, it didn't reflect the city in which I lived in and which I grew up in. And so that was the first red flag for me. And I was like, well, what the fuck is going on here? Like, why is it so difficult for me, a black um, BSN prepared nurse with comprehensive experience, also living in the neighborhood and fully capable? Why does it take so many years to even be able to secure an interview on the labor and delivery floor? So I was thinking about, you know, this sort of leveling up and becoming a higher level practitioner that you're doing. And I'm seeing some parallels in my own career path. So I used to work in public radio. And now I have my own podcast, I can do a lot of things I, c- I couldn't do. I can curse, I can make jokes, I can talk about my personal health. And when I'm at my best, I feel like, like that Frank Sinatra song, <laughs> like I did it my way. Yes. So having been a labor and delivery nurse, and now being a a certified nurse midwife and a doctor. What are some situations where you feel like now you can do it your way? Well, interesting that you ask, (laughs) because um, what I like to say is that um, we know that when the natural process is interfered with, we run the risk of running into complications. And I I just want to emphasize this enough that this is the most common scenario. So if your ass is running around here with like unattended chronic hypertension or something, you need to get your ass in a COB. I'm talking about most commonly, the natural process doesn't need to be interfered with. So I'm talking like most pregnancies are normal and healthy, right? So um, it begs the question of why is it that, you know, (laughs) nationally 33% of women or, you know, one in three need major abdominal surgery in order to deliver a child. And why is it that in large academic medical centers, um, there are places that are typically in the shadows encroaching, you know, buildings of the cities that are poor communities and underserved locations. And in these academic locations, birth outcomes for black women are the worst. So we also know that when we are left um, to to have a low intervention physiologic birth, such as, you know, in a midwifery practice, um, that the cesarean birth rate starts to mirror places outside of the United States in places with decent birth outcomes, Sweden and Finland and Norway and all those things that we love, but we never will be. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but the, the, the midwifery um, practice rates typically fall somewhere in the United States, somewhere between 12 
and um, 15%. And I don't want to get into the semantics for all the reason why, but a large majority is, of that is letting the physiologic process the fuck alone. That's a big part of it. And it is as the provider, um, you know, coming in as the advanced practice nurse, as the midwife, you have the ability to have a voice that um, carries some level of authority, you know, in terms of these are the these are the things that I would like you to do for these for this woman. And these are the reasons why, you know, so things like intermittent auscultation or, you know, one on one labor support or, you know, upright mobility in labor or or, you know, hydrotherapy. We know this stuff works. So to be in a position to give a fuck about knowing that this stuff works and being in the position to know that the standard way of doing things is not working, um, you know, to be the person who says, you know, I don't want her on continuous fetal monitoring. I know that that's hazardous. I know that's going to increase her risk for cesarean births with no direct outcome and long-term benefit for her or baby. This is science. You know, these are the things you learn through research and study. And these are the ways that you can make a difference if you, ki- if you give a shit. Because to me, it makes no difference. I mean, to, 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 to an obstetrician, it may, it may make a difference or may not. I'm not going to make a blank, blanket statement. But like in terms of reimbursement and ease and, you know, not having to work for a vaginal birth, I could see the benefit of throwing in the towel and being like really not giving a fuck that someone has to go for a C-section. So you asked the question. Oh, wait, can you can you explain that a little bit? So are you saying that doctors get paid more if they perform a C-section? I know insu- your insurance reimbursement rates are different. Um, so I did a lot of work with insurance companies in terms of reimbursement rates. And, you know, so for a typical, we'll say... Um, spontaneous, normal vaginal delivery, there was about a four to $6,000 difference um, in reimbursements. Um, and that's because it's, a, it's an expensive surgery. Your hospital stay times longer. You're going to require more care, you know, and you're going to bill for more. Do you know, you need different medications. So that should come to no surprise to anyone. If you've ever seen anyone's hospital bill detailed out it should come no surprise that it's a win a surgical birth is a win fiscally for a hospital or a provider (laughs) you know what I mean so Mm -hmm. I I can't make a blanket statement that you know like um, you know maybe some providers don't give a shit but also I can say that if there's more to be gained like let's say clinical experience for someone having um you know a surgical birth well hey that's a bonus right for the person who needs the cl- who needs to practice surgery I just want to take a step back to intermittent oscul Yes <laughs> can you pronounce it for me? <laughs> It's intermittent auscultation So I had to look that up can you explain what that is sure. and what the difference is between that and um, external fetal monitoring? Sure. So in labor, um, there's a method of continuously listening to the baby on the monitor. We call that EFM. And another method um, that is, is used to monitor the baby is intermittent auscultation. So that means that you're listening to the baby, not continuously, but at predefined moments in relationship to a mother's uterine contractions when she's in labor. And basically, 
evidence shows that the use of intermittent auscultation will decrease the mother's risk of instrumented vaginal delivery. So that means the use of a vacuum. Um, a vacuum is like a little suction device they put on top of the baby's head and helps guide the baby out, which is great when you need it. Lord knows. However, it does. It, it's not without risk or a forcept assisted delivery again, which is a lifesaver when you need it, but it's not without risk. And some of these risks involve things like, um, you know, larger vaginal tears, um, things like uh, damage to um, things that help you hold your urine or your rectum, things of that nature. So it's not without risk. Um, but we do know that the use of intermittent auscultation decreases those risks. And so a lot of people worry, well, what about the long-term outcomes? What about the long-term outcomes, right? Because we don't want to be doing this thing and then end up hurting babies, right? But the long-term outcomes aren't uh, supportive of the benefit for choosing uh, continuous EFM over intermittent auscultation. Um, the use of intermittent auscultation, you know, can help moms remain upright and mobile in labor. The use of intermittent auscultation does not mean that it's willy-nilly. It's a very clear science of when you're listening to the baby's heart rate in relationship to the uterine contractions to ensure that the baby is doing well on the inside. There's certain things that we're listening for. And the problems with EFM, if I, if I may. Yes, certainly. Other than being, other than the mother sort of being strapped in place is that there's a lot of false positives which lead to interventions, right? Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really the problem. And the truth is, is that there are very few circumstances where you're on continuous fetal heart monitoring and you know exactly what the hell's going on on the inside anyway. Absent variability is something that we're concerned about. Recurrent late decelerations, particularly with absent variability, and also sinusoidal. Other than that, I really almost don't even give a shit. It literally, I don't give a shit. The evidence isn't showing us that it's helping anybody to have the information. So this is a normal process, and people try to, uh, uh, you know, evaluate it and giving it some value more than what it's worth. That's the thing. And again... Uh, let me go back and say that this is not everyone. There are ve there are women who do not qualify for IA, and it's not safe, and they shouldn't have it, and it's contraindicated. But for those whom it's not, like, what are we doing? Are we ignoring the evidence? It's unreal, actually. Why Why do you think we're ignoring evidence? <laughs> I mean, there's, it's multifactorial. I mean, there's, number one, the biggest reason evidence is probably being ignored in regards to intermittent auscultation and the benefits of it is for staffing needs. And um, it's much easier to have a woman epiduralized in the bed and strapped to a monitor and not offering labor support. Because as a nurse, as a labor and delivery nurse, and I know this because I was one, you can have about two of those patients. And if things get dodgy, potentially three. So, so you're saying essentially like if somebody is on EFM, the machine is doing like more of the work. And then if it's IA, there actually needs to be a nurse going in and, and manipulate, like taking the wand and kind of checking. So it's more like labor intensive for an actual human being. It's labor intense. And if you have a mom, let's just say, or, um, 
uh, well, whoever you have, uh, let's just say, or wherever position they might be in, let's just say, so say they're in the tub, let, and let's to do an intermittent auscultation uh, accurately, you want to listen, ascertain a baseline, listen to the heart rate through the contraction, and for a minute after the contraction. That's what you want to do. And there's nothing recording, but you're going to want to listen. Now, let's just say that whole process there takes three minutes. You go into her bath, her, her labor space, and you go to her bathroom, and you're listening for three minutes. Now, if you, you probably, that's one contraction. So if you're doing that as a labor nurse, you're not just popping in there and popping out, okay? So you're going to need to do that every 15 minutes. But while you're doing that, you're helping her through the contraction. You're helping her get comfortable in the tub. You're talking to her and letting her know that, you know, the, con the contraction's coming down soon and to keep going. Or sometimes just shutting the hell up because that's what she wants. But it's a more intimate I, uh, expression to be with your 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 pregnant person doing intermittent auscultation as opposed to having them lay in the bed. There's zero work that needs to be done. And if you're so inclined, if you like, for example, because I've worked there um, and I know how it goes and I've seen it, if you happen to be a shitty labor and delivery nurse, there's a strong possibility that you may lay, leave that woman in that bed laboring in active labor in the same position for two, three hours four hours maybe that's a very typical thing that could happen i've seen it done and then so when this baby gets lodged into the birth pad you know the birth canal and is in in the right position and then she ends up going for a c-section well who, whose goddamn fault is that and that's why part of the aghast uh, kind of like at how this whole entire system is working is that it's a disservice disproportionately to black women. And so that hurt, that hurts me uh, dearly and personally. And, um, and my energy is really, you know, try to trying to like pose it in a way to see if, see if we could find resolutions to these sort of things. And that's why I think it's pretty important to get midwives into places and seats at tables where they weren't traditionally are to break that barrier in terms of talking about things that are wrong and things that can be done better and what the evidence says. And, you know, that's why I'm super, super um, devoted to really hoping that organizations realize the importance of midwifery care and work to help finance midwifery students because that's what we need more of. We need more midwives and we need less, uh, you know, obstetrical like service. We need one-on-one -on -one labor support. We need doulas for, for labor and birth. The maternal mortality rate for black mothers in the United States is 47.2 per 100,000 live births. I asked Stephanie from her perspective, what are some of the factors outside and inside the hospital that contribute to this statistic? When we talk about factors that are happening, if anyone has the time or the wherewithal to do a simple Google for social determinants of health and what this theory talks about, which isn't really a theory, it's real life. It's how your existence and the things that are in your circle of life directly influence your lifetime health outcomes. And so when we look at the social determinants of health for black women, we'll notice that black women are affected in every single area of social determinants for outcomes that are negative. 
So in terms of things that happen outside of the hospital and these social things, um, they're beyond something that could ever be said in a sentence or two. But what I would like to say is that um, there has been a lot of people who say, you know, poor maternal outcomes are poor access and discrimination. And, you know, that's what I see oftentimes on, you know, uh, particularly white birth workers uh, pages and proclamations and things like that. And what I'd like to say is that uh, it is not, it is not discrimination. Okay, it is racism and we need to call it what it is. Some of it's overt. Uh, some of it is impl implicit racism uh, through like perpetuation of implicit bias. Yeah, sure. Uh, other forms of racism are through institutional learnings, you know, through the medical education system, you know, like learned behavior. But what it is, is a racist system. And, and what I will say is the typical system is not designed for black women, not on in the inside of the hospital either. So like I said, and maybe there's a connection on why it would be um, when qualified nurses at the BSN level apply to get nursing positions in a labor and delivery floor on an, on, in an urban city, that why it would be such an impossible thing to happen. And wonder if it's because of the things that happen on that obstetrical unit that would be seen as um, less than, um, I don't know, I, there's so many, there's so many words. <laughs> there's so many words to, to use. You can, you can use whatever adjective you want. <clears throat> and so when you look at how things are working inside of the hospital that push the the continuation of like poor outcomes for black moms, it is certainly just racism. And, the, and, and we just need to say the words and acknowledge it and do better, you know, by different types of training, by having providers reflective of the, you know, neighborhoods and, you know, and things like that. Cause as I recall, um, on that particular labor and delivery floor where I worked, there were about 20 midwives, zero of them um, identified as a woman of color. So I found that to be very uh, disconcerting as well because midwifery, uh, the crux of midwifery, the history of midwifery in this country, make no mistake, comes from black women. You also mentioned in your first episode, um, and you you just talked about doulas, um, you talked about this kind of holistic support system that you work within with lactation consultants, sending people to the pelvic floor physical therapists maybe after birth. So can you talk more about this holistic system of care that it doesn't start or end with the midwife or the doctor? No, it certainly you know, it doesn't, doesn't start or end with the person, you know, who who's delivering the baby right it doesn't end there it certainly doesn't end there and you know um as i've said before there have been many um patient relationships that you know come to my existence or come to my like doorstep and this is their very first exposure to uh maternal health and i feel like it is you know 
my job or our job as midwives to uh, make sure that their experience in that space is a healthy one. And ways we do that go beyond the prenatal care and go beyond the labor and just the birth, but they continue on afterwards. So oftentimes um, patients will be like, hey, can I still see you after I have the baby? Oh, you bet your ass you're going to see me because I'm going to make sure <laughs> that you're getting the care that you need. I think that is that is going to be the change in healthcare um, now and healthcare moving forward. It's the personal it's the personal touch, and you can only get that in certain ways, but that's what it's going to be. You know, I I interviewed another midwife who said that too. That we're it's going to be more about this personal touch, but like convince me that this is the <laughs> that this is the future from a public health standpoint because it's true that if you have the money you can go you can go to that physical therapy which i've had and it's great i actually found you through my oh, pel- really? my pelvic floor <laughs> physical therapist instagram you can maybe go to that doula you can have the lamas and all the things but you know how accessible is that on a large scale. I think that knowing that we're in such a situation, um, there are a lot of organizations that work to bring access to these marginalized populations. And so, for example, um, let's say uh, um, there's an organization that um, offers doulas on a sliding scale. And, you know, it's a tough thing. It is a really, really difficult thing because um, everyone... (laughs) If, you, if you've ever worked with a doula, their schedules book up really quickly. And it's a very, historically, it's a very leisurely type of job. It's a white woman's job, uh, doulaing, usually typically with like a partner, very leisurely life, because you can't have like a nine to five and be a doula, you know. Um, so now that we're having more... Um, more access and we understand that this thing is needed and our pregnant women need need uh doula need doula support in labor and birth to affect these outcomes we have a lot of organizations that donate to the cause of covering um a doula for someone's labor birth or postpartum period uh there have been some significant gains in terms of insurance coverage for doulas um i encourage uh, doulas who are in the space of having luxury um, to have a, a doula client load and that is their work as a full-time person that they consider you know um, giving back by offering doula services to a marginalized population because it's expensive as hell and the people who need it the most can't access it. I just wanted to kind of close on something that makes you smile. I could tell you care about your patients. Um, Just maybe an experience that made you think like, yeah, this is my calling. Like I'm making a difference. I see that every, every, every single day, every single day. Um, But recently I had a mom. Um, She's, uh, she's pregnant now. She's uh, 40 years old. This is her first pregnancy. And, um, because of a medical condition, I knew that her first birth um, and any other subsequent birth would have the recommendation of having a cesarean section for her birth. I knew that, um, you know, that the risks involved in a vaginal, attempted vaginal delivery would be very risky. And 
I was not quick to force any of this information on her. I was very pleased walking this pregnancy with her prior to conception, through her conception, back through the whole, pre you know, back uh, through the pregnancy, early pregnancy. And so the conversation developed over weeks. I knew this discussion was coming. And from very early on, she kind of expressed that interest. And, um, and I gave her the best, most up-to-date information that I had, always being very honest with her. And eventually what happened is I sent her out for a consultation to the maternal fetal medicine doctors. And as suspected, they gave her the information that she needed, um, which was they gave her the background, they gave her all of the choices, they gave her her options, and they still didn't leave like, okay, so you need to schedule the surgery. They left her in a place of, I'm going to go home, I'm going to think about it, thank you so much for just allowing me to have this information and allowing me to make an informed choice. So I saw her the other day. She chewed on it. She molded on it. She thought about it. And she's going to proceed with what they recommended, which is the safest option for her and for her baby. And those type of things make me smile. And that might sound odd because I'm a midwife and she's going to have a cesarean birth. And, you know, she has a little bit more medical complications and some other things. But those things make me smile. Because she was given an opportunity to be listened to and to ask questions and provided unbiased information. And in so doing, she was respected in the process. And those things make me smile. Those things make me smile. There's a number of patients that have my telephone number. And I tell them again and again, don't you call me. After you've not done your due diligence, you better call your midwife who, or call the midwife on, on call, send your messages, do what you have to do. But my number exists in your phone because I want to know that if you are being disrespected, if you felt that you are being disregarded, or if you feel your concerns are not being listened to, you get on the phone. And I don't care if it's 1 o'clock in the morning. And I don't care if it's 10 o'clock. Those are the reasons why you call me. Those are the reasons why you call. And fortunately, a lot of them do not have to, but I've had to take those calls. You know, I've had to take those calls. And at the end of it, as it gets settled, you know, I feel good and it makes me smile because it is important to me that my clients, my women, my moms, my people feel respected. I really hope Stephanie continues the Dr. Midwife podcast. And again, you can catch her on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Midwife. I had to cut a lot out of both these interviews to fit them in the show, but you can hear the almost full versions by supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ladypartspod. For a donation of $5 or more a month, you'll get access to extended cuts of interviews from each episode. That's patreon.com slash ladypartspod. Lady Parts is produced by me, Andrea Moraskin, in partnership with Baobab Tree Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Production help this week from Melissa Davis. The Lady Parts logo is by Jamie Squire, and our theme song is by Adam Ragusia. Thank you so much for listening.